0: Hey, and welcome to the Six Minute Mile podcast. If you're ever stuck in the middle seat of an airplane during a long ground delay, you should hope that you're sitting next to Roger Robinson. Roger is one of the most literate and fascinating guys in the history of endurance sports. He's a university professor with a sharp wit and a charming British accent. He will sprinkle mentions of George Eliot's middle march into a chat about training regimes. Roger was a very good runner in his youth but he became a world-class runner in his 40s. He has won both Boston and New York as a master's runner, and he was aiming for a world championship this summer as an 81-year-old when the pandemic shut down that goal. Roger takes us through how he has continued to run despite two knee replacement surgeries. He has written several well-regarded books on running, and he shares advice on longevity in his popular stories on the Podium Runner website. And oh yeah, Roger also happens to be married to one of the most influential runners in history, Catherine Switzer, the first woman to officially complete the Boston Marathon. Money-back guarantee that you will learn something useful while being thoroughly entertained during our conversation with Roger. Enjoy, and we'll see you out there.
1: For original plan for this year, my understanding is that you you were aiming for, uh, I hate hate to say the number, but uh, an 80-year-old-plus world championship run um, so what were your original plans for this year and how have you had to
2: adapt? Well, that's, that's correct. I, am getting, getting unexpectedly back to running after two knee replacements and over 80, uh, and I, I still have enough childish fantasy to, to want to compete again in a world championship if I could. So I was aiming at the world masters championships, which were going to be in Toronto at the end of July, beginning of August. And I was trying to see if I could get fit in the something like six months that I had from when I really got properly running again after the second knee replacement. Uh, And then unfortunately, that plan got derailed because the virus came along and and the Toronto championships were canceled. And I found myself uh, still in New Zealand and and for for various various good reasons, unable and unwilling to go back to, to North America and take the risk. So everything changed. And so then i was I was the virtual eighty one year old runner <laughs> so, <laughs> so what what was
1: the event you were aiming for
2: Did you plan to run multiple events? Yeah, I was going to do uh, five thousand on the track, uh, ten thousand road, and possibly the half marathon now, now that may have been dream uh, because i hadn't got up to that distance yet in training but uh, but whether I would have done if that had stayed there i don't know but uh, but that those are the possibilities. Oh, and cross-country as well, 10K cross-country. Oh, but, good. That, but, but that depended on what the course was like, because b- back in the day, I loved cross-country. The the muddier, the hillier, the, the tougher, the, the, the wetter, the better. But with two knee replacements, a certain reality asserts itself. <laughs> so, well, it's, yeah, I, I don't enjoy it. I just can't do that anymore. And so I was having to check on, is this... Is this smooth grass? Are there a lot of tussocks? Are there a lot of, and, and so on? I could I could only have done that after after a course inspection. But that was that was all part of the fantasy.
1: And what what was the last time you raced at that level? A serious masters or supermasters race?
2: Oh, that was what, race seriously was when I turned fifty. I had which um, so that's, that's that's longer ago than most of your readers have been alive. Right, right. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, it's, it seems very recent to me. I did have a run when I was about 56, but I was suffering from the beginnings of the knee problem then. And that was when the world championships were in Japan. And I was actually invited there as a guest speaker by, by this extraordinary organization called the Japanese Marathon Society. And they, they flew me over as their guest speaker. And then I got, I got to run in the championships in Miyazaki. Uh, but I wasn't running well then. So the last that I take seriously, which, which I took very seriously, and, and in a way there's, there's a lesson in it, when I was 50, and I would, I would look back on those races as being as pleasing, as exciting, as satisfying, and as memorable, and as worthwhile as any races that I had in my whole life. Oh, that's
1: great, and and you're you're being modest, but there were some great successes in there, right? You were you were setting age group records at uh, Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, winning winning Masters events. Uh,
2: yes, yes, I was, I was running running well at that time. From well, really, from mid twenties through to early fifties, I su- I sustained a high level. But the great thing about the race in in Eugene, which was uh, nineteen eighty nine yes, 1989, sorry, I forget the decades, <laughs> of um, was that uh, they, they were very strong fields in the over-50s. And and I had some great races against this wonderful Irishman called Jim Jim McNamara. And I, I outmaneuvered him and outraced him on the 10k road on the opening. And then he did the same. He outkicked me in the 10k track. Oh, that's
1: a great duel. <laughs>
2: I wrote about that in, in, in the last chapter of my book because um, I was really want, that, that last chapter is about running for older people um, and I, I call I, I, that was so satisfying because Jim and I had those two races, one went one way, one went the other, and we then kind of tacitly decided to avoid each other for the remaining two races. We, did, we never discussed it. it was funny. But he ran, the, he ran and won the 5K on the track, and I ran and won the cross-country. And we were each other's most ardent supporter. You know, he was an absolute Kiwi that day in the cross-country, and I was, I was all in greed for Ireland and, uh, when, when, when he was racing. And we were just delighted. We became good friends. He died a couple of years ago, unfortunately, but we kept in touch by, by letter. And it was one of those friendships that you get among older runners.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah, friendly collusion. Good.
2: Yeah, and, and it, the, the satisfaction of it never ends, and the co- competition of it never ends. You're slower than you used to be, but, but it's still basically the same.
1: Well, and how do you reconcile that? When you get to a certain point in your career, you say, well, look, I'm, I'm not going to PR anymore. Um, but, but how do you look for that next level of satisfaction?
2: Uh, you're ambivalent. You kind of uh, block it out, and you just you 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 have to be sensible and accept what's possible. And I have to accept that at 81, I can't run as fast as I could at 21 or 31. Uh, but I can run just as hard, and I can improve relatively just as much. The other side of it was said beautifully when I was on a panel and, and the, the virtual panel at the Virtual Expo of the Virtual Boston Marathon a couple of weeks ago with Jonathan Beverley, who, who did a great book on on running in later life. Uh, and Jonathan just said nicely, it sucks. <laughs> 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 and and that, that is also true. <laughs> there's, there's a side of you that look at and I look at it, and I think I'm taking seriously running 26 minutes for 5K. which was kind of jogging speed (laughs) a few years ago or warm-up speed now I'm taking seriously whether I can get down under 26 to 29 25 59 uh, uh, good grief you
1: need a lot of of track work in hills just to get to that right
2: yes but it does take just as much work and I'm not going to say it is as satisfying you know that would would be just delusion Um, but it is still it's still satisfying enough to be well worth doing that would be my philosophy, I think.
1: And so what did you do? I, I assume you stayed active and fit during that, whether that was 25, 30-year gap before you decided to go for another world championship run here this year, but, but how did you stay active during that time?
2: Mostly on the bike, the mountain bike, walking. I mean, I ran as long as I could, and I was running in a very lopsided way. First one knee went, had that fixed, and then, then I started racing again and got back to a pretty good level in my late 70s, um, after the first knee replacement. And another part of the interest, of course, is, is I'm a kind of one man experiment as to whether it is possible to race on on knee replacements. Uh, So yes, the basic fitness came just just by uh, mountain biking, not technical stuff, you know, because I don't like falling off. Uh, but yeah. And that's people not. would say to me, why don't you get a better bike? You could go faster. And, and I would say, I don't want to go faster. Yeah, I, want it, I want it harder. The heavier the bike, the better. You know? yeah. <laughs> I have almost square wheels if I had to, yeah. just, just yeah. to get, get the work done. Currently, I've got, I've got another injury. And so at present, I'm just walking.
1: And so, what was back in a bit to your? So the first knee when you knew you needed to get that replaced, what what was the injury? A bad meniscus, or was it arthritis, or more than that? Just
2: wore, just just worn out, but bone bone on bone,
1: yeah,
2: uh, worn out. Uh, worked with the surgeon. I mean, I didn't tell him I'd started running again, but but after I did, uh, then we got together and we became good friends. And he found research and I continue to do research. And then when I had the second knee done, which was the first knee was in New Zealand, the second one was in America, uh, worked well with the surgeon then. He was very supportive. He's himself a triathlete. Right. And both have been very interested and the the whole orthopedic um, profession is interested, not just in me, but in the whole process of recovery. In fact, I won a literary award from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons one piece that i wrote about about my knees how many hundreds of thousands of dollars was that oh nothing no just it was a, it was oh. a, little, a, a little a little plaque but it's but it's the first no the first, that's great. the first time i've ever i've ever won an award for a, for a medical academy <laughs> um but you see my knees have names they're named after the surgeons they're called russell and mark and, and, they, and they make appearances at, at running expo speeches and things like that. And they've been on television several times. And they, in fact, in, in a series I did in, in Podium Runner uh, this year about getting back to, and, and originally it was conceived as, as aiming for the Toronto Games that we were talking about. Uh, I actually did the, the world's first live interview with, with two knee replacements. And, and they, they were interviewed and they expressed their views, you know, fairly contemptuous of me, but just because I'm so much older than they are. <laughs> but, but they no, they have their own personalities.
1: That's great. Do they have their own Instagram accounts? Uh,
2: they don't. I'm not up to that. <laughs> <laughs> good man. They're, they're young enough to be good at the technology, but they've been on Facebook several times. So All right, well, I'll, I'll
1: get my daughter to start the, the TikTok account for you. That's, oh, they're, that, they'll that, really they're, go viral then.
2: That would right. be it, but that, that's, that's beyond me. Fa- Facebook is about as technical as I can get, so <laughs> I, I, I can't even work that properly. But anyway, they've been on that, they've been, and their interview appeared on that, and so they are quite, quite interesting personalities. And I mean, the significant thing, just, just to be serious for a moment, is that they do seem to be showing, and you know, nothing is certain, that it is possible to run, and to run at, at a competitive level, on knee replacements. You know, I met somebody the other day, a New Zealander, who said he hasn't run for the last five years because his surgeon told him he mustn't run on the knee replacement, it will wear it out. Well, that thinking is now changing. And and the things that I've written have contributed in a small way to, to that change. They're beginning to realize, and you and, and your your listeners and readers will be interested in it if they're older and having Absolutely.
1: The,
2: yeah, the um the key thinking now is that by running, by doing impactive exercise, you're not wearing out or loosening the prosthesis, you know, the replacement metal, it's metal and plastic that's in there. By strengthening the bone and strengthening the muscles, you're actually more likely to keep it in place.
1: Ah, uh, Makes sense.
2: And so far on mine, there is no sign of wear. They've been, they've been x-rayed. One of them, Russell is now nine years old, And this, and and he's done some pretty hard running. You know, he's 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 run up to half marathons, and he's done two hour two hour runs and etc. Over those years, Uh, no sign of wear at all. Amazing. Who who knows? I mean, it's all it's all experiment, and and I'm I'm not. I don't want to be responsible for anybody else going out there and wrecking themselves, but it's worth trying. Absolutely. it's, It's worth it's worth kind of what I said about the first surgeon was I didn't disobey him, or not listen to him. I just sort of forgot. (laughs) <laughs> that's right. that, 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 that he told me not to run <laughs> love it
1: runners alzheimer's yeah
2: that's it that's it and when i met him one day he said have you been doing any running and i said no mm, well you're not supposed to know and he said i thought you would
1: <laughs> so obviously the, the the surgery itself is no fun but is does it result in a net loss of pain or an improvement in how your knee feels
2: oh Honestly, the sudden ending of the pain, I mean, once you recover from the pain of the surgery, is just blessed. It's miraculous. Oh, good,
1: good. So it doesn't take you three months post-surgery to get to a pain-free state.
2: No, no, not that, well, uh, you have the pain from the surgery, of course, and you you have to get through that. But once you start moving again, to live without that constant ache, and every time you put your foot to the ground, it hurts, which I'd had for... Oh, 15 or 20 years for the first one before I finally screwed up courage and decided that if I didn't have something done, I was going to be in a wheelchair. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, the, the basic message I think for your, your audience is keep running because that will, the overall benefits are just absolutely immeasurable. Every, every doctor I see says I come out of all the tests as a 35 year old in almost every way. Uh, bone density may be an exception to that. We're just just kind of te- testing that at the minute. Um, and if you do have a problem like like the knee, then then get back to exercise and even running as soon as possible. And the and the benefits will be there.
1: So, what did your training program look like leading up to Toronto? What 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 was your plan? And I've read some of this in Podium Runner, but our listeners in yes, case they don't have any access to it, but
2: I still, I, I I keep to what I always what I always did and what I what I use as a coach. Uh, it's it's very simple. It's just a basic mix of long runs and interval running, long long intervals. And I believe in those totally. And as as I say, I I don't know the full science of it because I'm not a scientist. But I've been using this system now for something like fifty or sixty years. With, with runners of all levels of ability, and I've never yet known it not succeed. <laughs> so that's, so. What is
1: that look yeah. like? That's a six or seven yeah. mile run with... Two yeah, you just,
2: just, yeah, just go out. Um, and I, I always do it by time. Other people do it by distance. Um, but I would go out and do, say, six by five minutes. Okay. I, work on, I try to work on the principle. It gets harder as you get older. Uh, but I try to work on the principle of what I call the quantity of quality. So that means if you're going to race 10k, and that's going to take you, let's say 40 minutes, then you ought, if possible, to build up in training, so you're doing 40 minutes of quality. So you're doing, say, 8 by 5 minutes, or 4 by 10 minutes. Fairly hard, you know, at race pace with, a re- with a recovery, with a recovery between
1: and what's recovery look like a minute, two minutes.
2: Uh, these days, that's, that's an, another principle I've worked out for older runners is just take, but my, my mantra is you can do a 25 year olds training. If you take a 75 year olds recovery. Okay. So, so take where I used to take half, say I was right. I was running six by five minutes. I would take two and a half minutes recovery. Now I take as long as I feel I need. And the guys that I'm coaching, I say, take as long as you feel you need. The interval is the least important part. It's getting the quality done that matters. It gets harder, you know, now that running a 10K takes me 55 minutes. Well, it's pretty hard to do 55 minutes of quality sure. training. So, so I can't meet that target now, um, but up to say 40 minutes you can.
1: And is there much use in your uh, program of going out and saying, "Hey, it's a sunny day. I'll go for a four-mile casual run"? Or is that is oh, that? Yes, oh, okay. yes,
2: absolutely. Oh, every other day. Uh, the other the other part of the uh, take a seventy-five-year-old's recovery is that where the basic program used to be hard, easy, right? You know, hard, hard one day, easy the next day. Now it's hard, easy, 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 easy. Really? No, really, <laughs> no. you, you need you need an easy day. You need I. I if I run hard now at 81, I'm totally wiped off the next day. You know, the, the body just doesn't want to move at all.
1: And how so did that look know. like at, let's say, at age 51? Oh, what, not what did that. Yet, you know, so like 21, 51, 81, how, what do those ratios look like at easy?
2: Oh, I would say that that comes in, that lack of recovery didn't come in for me until, until 70 plus.
1: Oh, okay. So you were still going at it. Yeah, I could I could
2: still go out and and, and do 15. and, and run, run hard three three times a week, three times a week. Uh, back when, back in my fifties. But that that ceased to be possible. And because I wasn't running much because I had the knee problem, I couldn't put an exact date, but certainly by the time the running life started again, <laughs> the world had changed in terms of the, the, the body wanting to recover. And so, so how- yeah, ba- but the basic program. I still say it's the same. There, there's no science on this. You know, Ed Whitlock used to run round and round his cemetery. Yeah. Uh, Derek Turnbull used to run over his New Zealand farm uh, on what he called just run, run as I feel and when I feel. Um, others, uh, John Keston did long runs, very long runs, alternated with two days of walking and, and so on. I don't think we yet have a kind of orthodoxy but my principle has just been what I've always done. That mixture of, of long intervals and longish runs. I'm building up a long run. I'd got, recently I got up over two hours for, for, for the long run. Right,
1: With some walking mixed in or?
2: No. Yeah. Oh, no. No, not if I could. <laughs> Good for you. Not if, I, not if I'm looking.
1: <laughs> well, every Ryan coach I've ever spoken to rolls their eyes, but my my fastest times in my not very successful running career, were I would go out three or four times a week and run as fast as I could. I knew nothing. I had no coaching. I hadn't read a book in this. I'd run as fast as I could for four or five, six miles, I'd try to beat my time from the, from, you know, the last time I ran that route. And, but I'd I'd run every other day, but it, you know, in a way, I guess it's sort of what you're saying. It's, it's hard, easy, hard, easy. And, you know, it wasn't really intervals. It was just, a really fast five miles, as fast as I could go, which is not smart, but
2: it worked. Not, 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 th- not three times a week. I mean, if you if you were a twenty-one-year-old Kenyan, that might work well. But well, yeah, I was, yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they're, they're using this high-level tempo running now, yeah. uh, which in a way we've we've always done. We just didn't know what to call it. Uh, but certainly, the days in between, I would I would always try and run if I can. Rather, rather than taking the complete right. day off. I mean, I, these days i take a day off after a race or after a really hard interval session and just walk. Uh, but otherwise i try and do just a gentle half hour run and just kind of keep keep the miles in the legs. Right. But and, of course and what, what is, that,
1: what is what, that Kenyan... What
2: works in later age? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see, right? Mm. Um, and what,
1: what, what... Describe for us the, um, that Kenyan tempo program.
2: Well, basically, it's running for a long time. They're essentially training for the marathon. And if we're talking about training, one of the really hard things is that you can't really train for a marathon, <laughs> if you see what I mean, because okay. the amount of work, you can't go out and run fast for two and a half hours every day. The body just simply won't take it. Uh, so you've got to work out ways of doing it. It was hard for my, my quantity of quality principle, the nearest I got to that when I was racing marathons seriously in my 40s, was running four times 15 minutes. So I got an hour of quality. And then tempo runs, so running, the, running two hours or close to it, for, uh, at, at, at close to race pace, just a bit below race pace, and that's essentially what they do. Okay. Uh, that was, it was the Italian Canova, the coach, who, who kind of reintroduced that. It's not brand new. It's what Derek, uh, Derek Clayton did in the 1960s and 70s when he broke the world record by two minutes. He was just going out and running so hard that the only person in Melbourne who could stay with him was Ron Clark. Uh, and and he, he, got, he got the work in that way, you know, big big guy without much natural speed. But he just did that extraordinary amount of just below race pace work. Very interesting. Mm. Uh,
1: and and how much of your success is is genetic and how much is hard work? Obviously, thousands and thousands of miles of hard work. But um, but but how do you think about genetics versus the miles you put in? <laughs>
2: Well, you, there will always be genetics, won't there? I mean, it, it's clearly if you have Kenyan or Ethiopian genes, that, then you have a huge advantage. And, and that's, that's not a racist thing to say, that's just the reality of people who have been, who've lived at altitude for right. millions of years. And have, and have led a running life for millions of years. And, and I mean, you can test this by saying, it's not just altitude because if it was only altitude, then the Tibetans would also be great runners. They are not. They are great hikers and weight carriers. They can carry more weight up the steep than anybody else in the world. The Kenyans can run faster, and the Ethiopians can run faster and longer than anybody else. So clearly, genetics are a major factor, and there's no point in pretending that that doesn't happen. And you've only got to look at the difference between East Africans and West Africans, say all the top distance runners are East Africans. You know, there are, there are no, no West Africans from those dense tropical forests where they didn't run. None of those. They're, 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 sprinters. they're, spr- they're sprinters and long jumpers. Uh, and that's the reality. And then, of course, you've always, any athlete has got got to add, add hard work. And um, I mean, I, I had obviously some ability to sustain genetic ability to, to operate at, clo- at close to crest, for a long time, but I had no natural speed. I mean, I, I've, I've never won a race. I, I used to say there ought to be a law against being passed on the last two hundred meters of the race because I, I lost so many races on the sprint. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, that just makes you ingenious and wicked about how to how to get away early enough so that you don't get passed.
1: But but who recognized at a young age was it the the first time you ran a mile? Did you beat all your schoolmates by?
2: 400 yards or No, I was no, I never, met that bit, but I realized that I was better at the, the longer it was, the better I was. Yeah. In the 100 yard races at school, I was always dead last. Yeah. Always. I mean, absolutely no fast twitch fibers at all. Same. And then as, yeah. as, it, as it got longer, it got better. And then I just, uh, at 13, went to a school where I discovered cross country and just loved it. Because I love that sense of going out and running in relation to the land, the terrain, as well as the opposition. I just That's found great. that so interesting. Still do love it. That's still what I would do most if, if my knees would let me, but they, they don't like it so much. <laughs>
1: but, what, but what did that very first encounter with cross-country look like? Did someone recruit you for the team, or did you... Uh...
2: Oh, it was just at, it. Was, um, at the school I went to, When the weather is in England. I moved, I moved to New Zealand in my late 20s. Uh, the weather was so bad in January and February that you couldn't play football.
1: Right.
2: They played rug- rugby at that particular school, which I hated as well. I was much too small for that. I right. uh, didn't like putting my head between other people's backsides and and pushing and coming <laughs> and, and, and rugby had no appeal for me. Whatever. <laughs> um, and cross country was just something I really—I wasn't outstanding at it. I was. I was only ninth or 10th say in the school junior cross country but then I just persisted and liked it and and just basically kept improving and I didn't I got to international level at 26.
1: And that was but, just a steady climb upwards. Yes
2: well it wasn't steady it uh, <laughs> was, was precipitously up and down and with, with, with I, days that I'd go out too fast and be utterly utterly devastated and disappointed and, and throw my shoes away and you know all of that <laughs> yeah, good, good. Uh, but if you, it's running distance running just takes long-term persistence it's not it's not just persistence on the day it's just a kind of faith or love of the process or something and just a belief that if i suppose what it comes down to and i've tried to express this in my books if you do the work you will improve right right well, well there's
1: I've heard other coaches and uh, people in, you know, in other fields of business or academia will say things like, well, why do you want to be good at something you're naturally okay at? Why don't you focus on being great at something you're naturally very good at? So in other words, why, why drive yourself crazy trying to improve something where you're not very good? And I, the corollary to that I've found in life is people tend to like doing things that they are good at doing, Um, But your story sounds a little different, your story sounds as if you you love the sport, you love the feeling, you love the experience of being out there running through the woods and over to Hill and Dale, but you weren't necessarily naturally born to it, but persisted anyway.
2: Well, I was born to it at a certain level, I wasn't born to it necessarily to, to do it really well. Uh, I think the answer to your first question is: is why do something if you're not that great at it? Well, perhaps there's nothing you're really great at, <laughs> and, and then you you find you find the best the best you can do, uh, and you are drawn. Yeah, of course, you do things that, I think you, you you choose to do things that you're fairly good at. You know, there'd be no point in me trying to be a singer, for instance, um, a, a musician. I mean, <laughs> that, that would be like running a ten-hour marathon. Um, and obviously but but there's a there 's a bigger question isn 't there because obviously there there are people are now choosing to run in the big mass movement that we 've got, and this is what I, I was really trying to capture in in my latest book, which was when, when running made history was this was the modern running movement that book started as a history of the modern running movement, and then it became something rather different and rather richer I think um, but it was trying to get the motivation of these millions of people, many of whom have the, the, no talent, whatever, but they still find it enormously satisfying to complete a race, and, or complete whatever the distance, it doesn't matter, it starts as the marathon. And some of them are really accomplished people in other fields. No, I, I, I won't name them, but I've known people who've been, you know, right. top airline top airline pilots or top professors or whatever. And, and they've been running their five, six-hour marathons, but still finding it immensely satisfying. And I look at it, and I'm not elitist because obviously I, I was never a great Olympic-level runner. I was kind of a good work-a-day uh, international-level runner eventually. I look at it and think, well, why, you know, why bother? Why pay $300 to run that badly? But, but right. at the same time, I can see the satisfaction of doing something individually fulfilling in that communal setting. And, it's, and the communal no, setting no, no. is part of the sense of being part of a community. And I mention music. I sometimes say that running has become, in society, something like music used to be where everybody sang in the church choir and they sang That's at right. church or they played an instrument or they had musical evenings or they, you know, the women played the piano to entertain it. And music was just part of the fabric of society. And I think in a strange way running has, has become that, a way in which people find a way of expressing themselves and getting some sense of significance in a, in a life where we each individual can feel very insignificant these days with, with such a such a vast overpopulated society, uh, but yet doing it with other people and with other people's support. So the communal thing is part of, and that, of course, is what we're now, in this current crisis, having to, in some way, come to terms with it. I've, right. I've got a friend who who I coach in, in America, and I had an email from him this morning. He's found a, an actual race coming up in, in upstate New York in about four or five weeks time and he's yeah. so excited because it's going to be an actual race and probably there will be protocols of you I'm know sure. keeping social distance at the start and starting in waves or whatever i don't know i know that they'll they should probably do that i'm sure they will but nevertheless experience of doing that rather than just running virtually which is what we've all been doing for the last six months we now need to rethink that and think well where do we go next and how do we how do we get back that buzz of are working with other people and being and, and being part of, part of this great vast positive community.
1: Well, and, and you may disagree, but I think the um, look, I'm thrilled to see the success of as we were chatting earlier of 45,000 people signing up for a virtual London Marathon. Terrific! That's great. I, I find that hard to think that's sustainable, and hopefully, it will not need to be long term sustainable, right? So, I feel as if it's it's scratching an itch right now, but it, it is. You, you've done a much better job than I ever could of articulating why people are drawn to those mass events. And in a, yeah. in a strange way, I mean it's almost the bigger the event, the more people are drawn to it, which is a little counterintuitive because the the hassle factor of participating in a ten thousand person half marathon versus a two hundred person half marathon is
2: you know absolutely you know, right exponentially greater yeah i mean who would who would choose to get up at four o'clock in the morning and get a ferry to to Staten Island and sit around in the cold for four hours oh, and right <laughs> who would actually choose choose to spend a Sunday morning doing that <laughs> but as you say the the, com- the the community factor is is a major part of it. And I think that's why people are now signing up. They don't have to sign up for the London Marathon or the Boston Marathon like course all they're going to do is go out and run it on their own streets anyway. Right. But they still have this sense of belonging uh, and I think that that, that sense that I tried to get that we have we have a, a, a remarkable community in in running it's really it's really unequaled in in the modern world and in my book at one one or two points, I compared it i said if you, if you want to know where the Woodstocks spirit went, look at a modern marathon because <laughs> And that's not to say people are lying around with you know with 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 right. around naked, but it's that sense of a whole lot of people getting together in a spirit of complete communality, peacefulness, supporting each other, living positively, absolutely not any touch of aggression uh, or harm being done to each other. Kind of complete trust,
1: Good Good which you,
2: you, you had at Woodstock. That's the positive, the positive side of it of what of what happened there. Complete trust of each other, complete collaboration, and you get the same in a marathon. Somebody, I always say, running is the only sport where if somebody falls over, the others stop and pick them up. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, you don't, you don't get that in Super Bowl football. Um, uh, and it's also the only sport where nobody ever boos anybody. Yeah. No, the crowds are entirely positive. I I tried to articulate that when I had to write a piece. Within an hour of, of the bombings at Boston, and, and my editor emailed me and said, Can you express what this means for running? Uh, and, and I said, it, it's, it, is, it's, it's, it hits us so deeply because we are such an open and trusting society, uh, com- community. And we've been offended, you know. I feel as if I've, my home has been invaded, you know, this is, is, what, is what how I was trying to articulate how, how we felt. But I said that this the experience of being around running and I said what I'd gone through in Boston that week, everything had been positive, you know, even, even press conferences and journalists aren't necessarily nice to each other, right? but, but, but the whole spirit around running is, is absolutely unique, you know, my other world is, is the academic one. And, you know, things are pretty good there, but but there's nothing like that positive and collaborative spirit. There's much more watching each other and thinking, well, what article is he gonna write? I'm gonna try and get one out before him, or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whereas running is, and I'm not I'm not being kind of gooey and sentimental. Just, this is the reality. You talk to anybody, they love running. It's a really significant part of their life. And now we're reaching out, people like, you know, my wife, Catherine Switzer is, re- is reaching out with this 261 movement. To women who have never run, bring them in, make them feel completely non-threatened and non-pressured. You don't have to do it particularly well; just be here in a small community, and then get the sense that it's part of part of a bigger community. No, so I think, it, I think it is it is something really important in modern society, where we've got more than enough. You know, we look, look at the. How the world is right now, while, while we're talking, we've got quite enough aggression and, and distrust and lack of communication, and running is has, is enormously valuable in in the part it plays for the positive. I think in that world.
1: So you so you watched the debate last night. You're saying,
0: uh, <laughs> let's not just, go down that road. Sorry.
2: No, 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 I could, no we can we can go down that road, but but that's exactly what I'm talking about. I was just trying to be tactful enough not to not to entirely blame your country because it's actually more uh, or my country as well. No, know, no, 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 I, I would be living in yeah. under under different, different circumstances. Now I
1: I remember years and years ago I had a job interview. It was one of my first jobs coming out of college and, and somewhere on my resume he said, Oh, you're um you're a distance runner. Um, how are we going to know that you're a good team player? That's a that's a lonely sport. That's a, an individual sport where you only care about yourself. And I, and I was really, I was really taken aback
2: because I thought,
1: no, how, where do I begin? You're too yes, far off the mark with this, right? Yes. Um, where, where
2: Where do you begin? Well, you begin where, well, certainly where I began, which was running in high school and then university, and with clubs in the English and New Zealand system, where the club result was always at least as important as your individual result. Uh, right. And, oh, I think I think running is again. It's what, one of its great positives is is that you have you have the individual and the team. And if you're finishing in a cross country race or a road race and it's an inter team race and you're finishing in 498th place, whether you catch the guy and get 497th might be what result what changes the team result.
1: Right. Right. You're, re- right.
2: you're really important. Yeah. So yeah. you could give him that answer. Or in t- two days' time, I'm going to watch the New Zealand. National Road Relay, which is where seven guys pass a baton and each of them run about nine to 10 to 12k, something like that. Okay. And the clubs all run against each other. And so the, the weakest man in that team is as important as the strongest man in the team. Absolutely. Or woman, or woman, or whatever, or walker. You know, they're just right, right. coming. I take some pride in that because actually the, I suggested that the institution of that race. I love and, that, and I it's think, taking
1: place it's, with, with some protocols
2: probably, but taking place live in person. Yes, yes, taking place because New Zealand is now virtually virtually virus free, uh, and so, but there will there will still be still be protocols. There probably won't be an indoors uh, awards ceremony. Um, we we Catherine and I were at the national marathon last weekend, and there was no indoors ceremony. And uh, I think. The nicest one was, was a cross-country race about four weeks ago, which started as a national championship. Couldn't be it because the Aucklanders couldn't come because they had a, a virus outbreak. And so everything was modified. And The best part was the athletes receiving their awards would have their name announced, step up onto the podium, put the medal round their own neck, and shake hands with the air. <laughs> with, with an invisible presenter that's
1: good a little marcel marceau uh pantomime routine i like it <laughs> that's good well, uh, well, since since you brought up uh your your wonderful wife so as you probably know we had a conversation with her last week so the, the extremely difficult act to follow but so we won't we won't delve too deeply into uh, the relationship but we uh but i've always been curious about what's the uh, obviously you're a charming engaged man but what, what was uh uh, what, what was the opening line? How did, how did you impress her so quickly? I'm not telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. This is, you're willing to coach your fellow runners. But, we just talked about what I, a
2: wonderful community it is. I can, I can give you the context. We met as we were the, we were the two guest speakers at, at a pre-race event at the Australian National Marathon in Canberra, Australia. Uh, which is the National Government Centre? It's a, 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 a tower, a city which has been created really as a public service centre. So think, think Washington, kind of without all all the extra part that's added that, that belongs to Washington DC. Uh, and the, the Australians regard it as a as a very dull public service centre. So we like to say, if we if we're speaking in Australia, I always say we're the only people in the world who think of Canberra as romantic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Australians always always find There's that funny. Fond memories, good stuff. I suppose that it's very simple terms. You know, we both have made our lives partly in running. Catherine more fully than I did because I had my full academic career as well. Uh, so that's that's a bond, and we both have that as an important part of life. But it's 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 never obsessive. You know, we we, we have a wide wide range of interests and friends as well. So, you uh,
1: know. I'll ask you one more longer form question, then I'll, I'll hit you with a couple of quick questions. Uh, but uh, to wrap up, but do you, where are the parallels between your pursuit of writing and your pursuit of running? And it's it's clear that you have a deep love for both and, and deep competence in both areas. How do those overlap? Is it is it the same part of the brain, same part of inspiration that, that informs you for those practices? How do you think about those two skill sets and passions?
2: No, well, well thank, thanks for asking that, because it's, it's something that's very important to me. It's kind of, in a way, my current campaign, that as a professor of literature, literary critic, scholar, or editor, etc., etc., um, and then also as a runner and a writer about running, one of the things that I find frustrating is that the literary world seems incapable of thinking of sports writing as being of literary value.
1: Thank you. And yeah. In a way,
2: that's been my campaign, and is still my campaign, and it's, it's, it's a long, it's an uphill struggle, because l- l- when did you last see a, the program for a literary conference with a session on sports writing? Love or if you, if you do, and I was invited to one in Auckland two years ago, they wanted to make the session on the place of sport in New Zealand society. And I said, I'm not interested in sociology 101, I'm interested okay. in my book being discussed in exactly the same way as you would discuss the booker winning novel because it has the same degree of literary energy and creativity and variety of writing and communication with the audience and telling good stories creating characters building serious themes onto those characters and don't tell me running isn't important you know look if, if if 40,000 people stand together and run across the Veretzal and the Bridge millions of people watch them, and another 400,000 or something want to run, right. tell me something else that attracts those numbers.
1: Oh, and it's primal, Rather, and instinctual, it gets, gets the real human identity. Absolutely. And there are
2: millions, millions of people for whom running is really important in their life. And if you like, this, this is going to sound pretentious, but my job is to try and articulate that at, at the highest literary level that I can. Plenty of other people are writing about it. I, you know, I could, I could kind of go to that higher range and and tell a, a do, combine the stories with the history and, and so on. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's an important part. In a way, I could at this time, being retired from teaching as a professor, I could be spending my retirement, say, writing poetry. Or writing novels. My belief is that I've got a much more important job and a job that I can do better uh, by writing about something that I really know and Absolutely. and really love, and that millions yeah. of other people really know and love and want to read about. So why should I write poetry about growing cabbages or or <laughs> or or, or or, or or, whatever, you know, walking in the woods, I'd rather write, I'd rather write a, an essay about running in the woods and, and, and what that means to me and express that in the best way I possibly can. That's what I've tried to do in my books. And the next one coming, talking of the stories, the last one was When Running Made History, which was all eyewitness, eyewitness history. It was in my lifetime, starting from 1948 when I saw the Olympics and it came through to seeing the American, uh, the the US Masters 5K Championships in 2017, I think. Uh, So it had that, it's my lifetime range. This next book is the great running stories further back, starting with Atalanta in in Greek myth and coming through Pheidippides and Spiridon Lewis and and, uh, collapsing uh, uh, and then uh, uh, Spiridon Lewis winning the first Olympic marathon. Durando Pietri, Roger Bannister, Ver, Joni Benoit, and various other you know, the, the the great stories of running, but not these are this is researched history rather than witness history, and it's basically again storytelling at, at, at the best the most compelling level that I can manage.
1: Great stuff. Uh, that's, all right, with well,
2: the, good. That, that's with the publisher now, so I'm just I'm just <laughs> wait, waiting to get their feedback. Oh, uh-huh, good.
1: Uh, all right, we're good to segue into our. Uh, we'll hit you with a couple, a couple, a uh, quick rapid-fire questions, uh, and then we will. We will. Uh, you know, sun is setting here in Boston, so we'll let you go enjoy the full, full beautiful day in New Zealand. But um, favorite running book, and then we'll ask you favorite non-running book. And I, I obviously we
2: will, we'll limit it. So
1: you can't include your own, but uh, favorite running book.
2: <laughs> That's <laughs> the second one is going to be really hard. Favorite running book is, I think, quite easy. Kenny Moore's Bowerman and the men of Oregon is a book that I think deserves to win the Pulitzer Prize. It is a superb piece of biography and it's a really important piece of running history. And he is good, Kenny Moore is good in every possible way. You know, Bannister's book is good, there are others that I really like, but that's the one that I would put absolutely on top. Kenny, okay. uh, Kenny Moore, Bowerman and the men of Oregon, it's about the growth, about the whole team, about Prefontaine, about Nike. Bowman's War Experiences, every Terrific piece of writing. Love it. All right. Well, that'll,
0: that'll be highlighted in next week's
1: edition. That's, that's a great one. Uh, all right. Don, running book. Uh,
2: well, uh, there used to be a program in England called Desert Island Discs, and they always said, what book would you take with you other than the works of Shakespeare in the Bible? Right, uh, right. So, so, that, yeah. so certainly it would be the works of Shakespeare, but other than that, George Eliot's novel Middlemarch. Uh, great. Well, by yeah. a narrow, by a very narrow, just by a nose, from Fielding's Tom Jones and Hardy's Tess of the So I'm I'm a novel am a novel specialist, and uh, I will right. reread re- re- those constantly. We'll put George, those George, George Eliot's Middlemarch. There's, there's there's no running in it, but um, but there's a lot there's a lot of very very vigorous walking.
1: <laughs> uh,
2: movie favorite movie Shakespeare in Love.
1: Oh, so it was cute in depth. Uh, great one, yeah. Good choice. It's
2: got it's got Shakespeare. It's it's sexy. It's romantic. Uh, it's got a cat, which is an essential for me. Uh, and uh, as I said, after after Catherine and I walked out when we first saw it, I said, if that had only had the 1596 London marathon, it would be the c- perfect film for me.
1: Um. <laughs> uh or uh, favorite race you've ever run of all time?
2: That I've ever run, uh, I think it would be when I won the World Masters 10k Road Championship in 1980 in Glasgow, Scotland. Because that was, I mean, here I was, we talked before, not, not an outstanding talent as a schoolboy or a student. I didn't make the Cambridge University first team, for instance, uh, as a blue, and, and now here I was winning a world championship. And winning it by, um, oh, by both by tactics and ability. And you know, I I broke found, found a hill at halfway and broke them on the hill because you know I, I live in Wellington, New Zealand, so can run hills. Right, right. And it was, right. was was a strong international field. A uh, couple of really good Brits who were second second and third. So so that was a was one of those few races that went perfectly in every way. So so that one. Oh, that's great. Morning
1: runner or evening runner.
2: Oh, oh, am I? Oh, I, I don't, I don't do, sorry, I don't do morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, have, I have religious objections to running before breakfast. <laughs> Were it's you going nice. to ask me about the greatest race I've ever seen? Very quickly, greatest race I've ever, yes. ever, I've ever yes. witnessed, the one that has always stayed in my head is seeing Murray Halberg from New Zealand, though I, I didn't know at that date I was ever going to live in New Zealand, win the 5,000 meters on the track in the Rome Olympics in 1960 because he broke from the field with three laps to go. Wow. And he, got, he got a winning break, and he held on to that desperately. With, with because Germans. he knew he did not German. have a kick? Well, he actually he did have a kick, but not an absolutely infallible one. And so he, he decided to use his endurance strength. And for me, watching that, as I said, I've never had a finishing kick. I just, just, just can't find it. I thought, that's how I could win races. If you just... Uh, <laughs> and, and I, I used to say you know i i, I ran i run my last lap with 3 to go and leave the last 2 to god and <laughs> like just in some way just 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 hang on so if you can get that break and just put, ask them the question and you can offer, you, you can get away so that's why i would always make the break somewhere between you know a third of the way into the race and 2 thirds, something like that I love anyway that. Murray uh, halberg always just that's the, that's the simple answer i
1: love that all right last one for you who um Famous person, living or dead, that you would like to have dinner with?
2: Barack Obama.
1: <laughs> Did Ka- Catherine said the same thing, I think, Well,
2: Well, you see, we have things in common.
1: There you go. A match made in heaven. <laughs> so there, maybe, maybe uh, well, was, you met too long ago. Your opening line was probably not about politics and uh, U.S. presidents. So we'll, we'll, in our, by our third podcast w- with you or Catherine, we'll figure out what the opening line was and the, the first date. <laughs> no, it wasn't about U.S. politics. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, you're so generous with your time. This is a great conversation. As we said at the beginning, we, we've got another three or four hours of questions, but we won't hold you up in this. But maybe, uh, maybe sometime we'll beg your indulgence and, and uh, get you again to follow up on some of these ideas. But uh, definitely, really yeah.
2: fun conversation. Can I just put in one more thing? Sorry. Oh, not, please not to, do. Not to interrupt you, which is just that in. In my book, When Running Made History, one of the things I say, just thinking of your your business, is that a new art form that goes along with the new social activity of running, a new art form is photographs of mass fields of runners against interesting backgrounds. A totally unique 21st or late 20th century, 21st century art form. Think of those pictures of runners coming over the verrazano Narrows Bridge, or runners in front of the Colosseum in Rome, or runners in front of the Arc de Triomphe in, in, in Paris, whatever, just keep multiplying that. It's a new art form and it's absolutely stunning. And new people are creating it. So, so, so thank you for doing that as well.
1: Wow, your shameless pandering is well received.
2: We appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely, flattery always works.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Roger, thank you so much. Give our best to Catherine and uh, you're a good sport for, uh, for putting up with our silly questions.
2: Thank you. Not silly at all. Thank you very much. Good conversation. Many thanks. Thank you. And good, good luck with the publication and good Thank luck with the... Thank you so much. And may you have races to photograph very soon.
0: Oh,
1: from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.